You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bo's Nose Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. And good afternoon and welcome to another edition of the Bo's Nose Show. And I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon, where we're having one of those unusually nice February days after some pretty nasty weather here in the Pacific Northwest. Fortunately, Lane County missed out on most of the worst of it. It it really was from Albany North uh, up into the Portland area that got the bad ice and, and, you know, the mountains got the snow. We just got rain and wind here, uh, so it wasn't too bad. But, uh, you know, that that weather, you know, brought into play some attention to, you know, our power grid once again. And at the same time, we were having that weekend of pretty nasty weather here in the Pacific Northwest. The Midwest, uh, the Plains states in Texas got slammed with a horrendous cold front, big ice storm moving in ahead of it. So, power outages, then, you know, sub-freezing close to zero temperatures, and it really strained the electric grid there that that runs up the center of the U.S. uh, and caused all sorts of havoc. And we'll be talking about that a bit here on the Bo's Nose Show. But first, I just want to take a moment to note the passing of Rush Limbaugh today. Uh, I just happened to turn have the radio on from listening to my good friend Bill London on the wake-up call and on came uh, a female voice uh, instead of uh, a male co-host or guest host or or Rush's voice and it immediately made me stop and listen and it turned out it was Catherine his wife announcing Rush's passing uh, due to lung cancer and you know I I promoted the show um, you know, I was going to talk about, you know, wind and natural gas and, and the ice storms and also mention the passing of Rush Limbaugh and his incredible life. And I actually had some people criticize the fact that I mentioned he had an incredible life. How can you not describe somebody that totally changed, you know, AM radio and 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 political talk in this nation in a way that he did. Um, you know, whether you liked him or hated him, you know, agreed or disagreed with his views, um, and don't believe half of what you were told about what he said and how it was either racist, homophobic, or whatever, because quite often it was taken out of context um, and, and not shown as either the parody he was doing at the time, or not with the contextual remainder of the quotes uh, that showed it wasn't what you thought it was. Um, but I'm just saying, if you believe some of that stuff, go to the sources, 
listen to the entire segment or, or whatever and see if you still believe what he was saying was somehow or another that way. Um, I mean, he played with the edge because he was part political commentary and part comedian. That was kind of what made him work on the radio was his comic value um, from the satire songs that he had put together to um, just the straight out satire and sarcasm that he used on the air quite a bit. But, you know, prior to Rush Limbaugh, you know, talk radio was kind of a, a pretty small industry. Uh, you know, the, the, the granddaddy of talk radio basically um, gets back to Neil Bortz, who was around even before Rush um, and a few other uh, radio hosts, but they never had near the nationwide audience that Rush did. Rush eventually controlled an audience that in the middle of the workday had a higher audience than all three evening news networks put together for their evening news broadcast when people were home, you know, on television. So, you know, just an, an incredible um, career, you know, and what he did and, and, and how he changed that industry. And what an incredible hard worker. Uh, you know, the man was, was driven, uh, multiple businesses running at the same time, you know, understood branding, understood taking advantage of the brand. Yes, it made him rich, but we should celebrate people that are successful in this country. We don't do that enough in this country. We always, you know, seem to hear stories, you know, about somebody that's on hard times or somebody that's suffered some kind of um, tragedy. Every once in a while, we should be having a story on the news about somebody that just did exceptionally well in life and, and ask some of those questions about how that happened and, and hold those people up. And Rush was one of those people that just did incredibly well as, as you know, some of the articles about his death today had to mention he dropped out of college. So he, here's somebody with a high school diploma, a college dropout, multimillionaire, you know, basically controlling a huge segment of an industry. Uh, and it was from hard work. I mean, you know, and and understanding, you know, having a concept and, and, you know, just driving some of the things home that he did. You know, he was the first talk show host that, that put together a research staff to supply him with some of the, his factual tidbits and stories and, you know, his ability to go back and replay sound bites of something he said, you know, 10 years ago about a certain subject. That isn't just Rush doing that, you know, he understood he needed to pay a staff to get that stuff available to him so he would sound good on the air. Um, and it was it was a new concept at the time to do some of what he did. And, you know, like him, love him, agree with him, disagree with him. I disagree with Rush at times. Um, you know, he's sometimes too much of a populist. Um, sometimes too ready to use uh, government um, to control you know, morals uh, and, and some other things that I don't agree with as a libertarian. Whether you agree with them or disagree with them, 
you can't disagree with the fact of how successful the man was, what he overcame to get there, what he overcame to stay there. You know, this is a man that, that had a, you know, a hearing issue come up due to a virus that he, you know, and, and some other issues that he ended up uh, getting prescribed Oxycontin. And as usual, um, you know, with the opioid industry in this country, ended up addicted to it and um, managed to survive that, get off the drugs, still work with almost zero hearing and a cochlear implant. Um, and talk radio is just an amazing feat. Um, so, you know, whether or not you liked him politically, whether you still think he's, you know, racist, homophobic, or whatever you thought he was, you can't deny the fact that he was a huge success. His success was due to hard work and perseverance. You know, and, and his ability to run a business. And we should hold up those people in this country that are able to do that. And, you know, he, you know, he's not, you know, somebody that came, you know, with a silver spoon in his mouth necessarily. And he, here he, here he was, you know, with his, his Southern command there in Florida um, on the beach, you know, make, you know, living the high life. Um, and he, he just, he built that himself. He worked hard for it. You know, just like we, you know, look at some of the other icons of industry that we, we should be holding up as these incredible success stories um, that, that came from nothing. We should be holding up the, the owner of the local plumbing company, you know, who decided to go to trade school and instead of just working for somebody else, decided to, to open his own company and then started hiring other plumbers, you know, and eventually, you know, is running a plumbing company with 10 or 20 plumbers, you know, and, and trucks underneath of them. I guarantee that person worked hard. And I guarantee he's probably doing pretty well. And it's somebody we should celebrate. We don't celebrate our successful business people in this country enough. In fact, if anything, it seems like we have a tendency in this country to run them down and, and, and accuse them of, of not really having work to get where they are. And, and more often than not, it's the opposite way. It's one of the reasons in this country there is so much movement between income quintiles, as they like to call it, between the top 20% of income earners and the bottom 20% of income earners. Because you can decide, come up with an idea or get a skill, decide to work hard and move from that bottom quintile to the top quintile with hard work. And you can go the other direction too. You know, you can run something into the ground, you know, get a gambling addiction, whatever it is, and end up in that bottom quintile from the top. We have more movement than almost any country in the world between our income levels. We should celebrate the people that have managed to move up that income level with hard work, employing other people. I mean, how many people do you think Rush Limbaugh employed totally? I have no idea, but I bet it's close to 100 if not more, when you start thinking about some of his spinoff companies, like his books, his um, 
Tea Company and a few others. Um, you know, he, he's, he was an, uh, a brand into himself. So I'm just, you know, want to note that, you know, we lost somebody iconic today, whether you liked him or not, we still lost that person today. And whether you liked him or not, you can't disagree with the fact that he worked hard, made something of himself, and was a success. And that's something we should appreciate in this country. So that's probably about all I'm going to say about Rush, unless you want to call in today at 646-721-9887. Just press 1 so Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, knows you want to get on the conversation because um, uh, she will, she's my bow snurdly and, uh, <laughs> and she'll, she'll get you up on the board here and we'll get you on, in on the show and we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about, because that's what makes the show interesting is when somebody calls in and kind of takes us off my topics and takes us where you want to go. Again, at 646-721-9887, just press 1 so we know you want to get in on the conversation because we have people that actually call in just to listen on their cell phones because they might be in the car, can't get a, you know, can't get a computer signal where they are, whatever. They're, they're listening on that phone. So as, as we move back into some more mundane topics um, and, and get back to kind of something I've talked about a couple times here, and that is why natural gas is important to our energy mix in this country. Not just the electric grid, which we're going to talk about a lot today, but also just your home energy mix. Because I imagine a lot of those people that were in Oklahoma and Texas and um, Nebraska and other states that lost power in that bone-chilling cold, if they had a natural gas fireplace and even you know a a stove and an oven and and maybe even natural gas heat if they could get enough of a generator hooked up to run the fan they probably still had some warmth in their house if they had you know but for the most part there was still pressure in the pipes up to houses what we ran into though was some uh problems with the whole electric grid out there because the ice storm and the, the super cold temperatures froze up a lot of equipment. And it froze it up in differing degrees. Yes, the gas systems did have problems. So um, they did lose a portion of their gas generating facilities and they lost a portion of, they, even there was even one nuclear power plant that had to partially shut down for a while um, because of difficulties during the storm. Um, but they only lost about 45% of the thermal generation in Texas. And, and they actually set records for demand that went beyond the predicted peak demand. So, you know, the, the combination of the two was really bad. But they lost over 80% of the, quote, green power portion of their electric grid. Now, good thing, the green power portion is only 20%. But during the worst times, 90% of the power in Texas that was left was coming from thermal sources, not wind turbines. In fact, almost nothing came from wind turbines at that time because they were all frozen up. And most of that 90% came from natural gas. 
So those folks that did have electricity, if they didn't have a natural gas fireplace, they could at least run their electric heat. Um, and it was because there was natural gas running the grid. But one of the things it did do was it spiked natural gas prices like you would not believe. Now, that sounds like that might be a bad thing. It sounds like price gouging in some ways. What it was was a supply and demand issue because as um, gas supply things went offline due to frozen pumps or and wellheads um, and the input into the system decreased, there was a bidding war for what was left. What that does, and this is where the invisible hand of capitalism comes in, for those that want to criticize the, the free market economy, that high price, those folks that were able to still put gas into the system made a boatload of money for a short while there. Because the price went from under 100 bucks per million BTUs to 999 at one point in Oklahoma. <laughs> I mean, an over tenfold increase in the spot price of natural gas. What that's gonna do is make all those other providers maybe think about, you know, better insulation, you know, heat tape and other, you know, uh, devices that can make their wells produce in colder weather. So that the next time this happens, they're one of the people that's getting that higher price. That spike in prices and that profit, those folks that were able to pump into the system were able to receive will stimulate investment in higher reliability in the system. Now, if that price were somehow or another fixed by the government, not allowed to rise, why would anybody invest in all that extra insulation, heat tape, and, and preventative measures because they're not going to see, a, you know, much of a, a return on their investment. Thereby, the folks that were able to pump into the system not being able to see any, you know, difference might allow their equipment to deteriorate and become one of the ones that freezes up too. So that invisible hand of capitalism is actually going to make that system more reliable in the future. The fact that there was a open market for that gas in the electric system to purchase it for generation drove that price up and is going to stimulate investment in making other wells more secure. Now, unfortunately, no such animal happened with, with wind turbines. You know, I don't care you know, what you do, it's pretty hard to find some way to de-ice an 80-foot blade on a wind turbine um, and make it a return on investment. Um, so I'm not so sure how that portion of the electric grid is going to get upgraded. Um, and seeing that basically nearly 100% of it went offline, so there wasn't even, you know, somebody that was gaining you know, a lot of profits by staying online, it doesn't give much incentive for anyone to invest in in reliability investments in that infrastructure. I don't, I'm not quite sure how you would keep those from being iced up in an ice storm, but there you have it. 
major winter storm, record cold, record setting peak demand for electricity. They had done modeling in Texas of what they thought the peak demand was going to be, and they had, they had set it at, at you know, 67 gigawatts of power, and they went over 69 before the system, you know, the system had to start shutting parts of it down just to protect the system um, because the generation had fallen off on the, on the downside. But it was, it was mostly the thermal, 90% that supplied that. Um, and when they talk about the other 20%, they're including some things like um, bio uh, mass generation and, and uh, uh, biomethane generation, all that in that 20%, that's not, that's, green power. Um, so a little bit of a lesson there. And then when you take that up into the Northwest, as we've talked about before, we get our peak demands in the winter, not too different than what happened in Texas. Although they actually peak out in the summertime when everyone's running their air conditioners, but they don't have the issues with um, wind turbines and gas fire facilities and other facilities going down due to freezing temperatures. Um, so it was kind of just a bad combination that caused their, their power grid problems and, and some of the rolling blackouts. But here in Pacific Northwest, we specifically see our peak is the winter peaks in the mornings. Our peak demand, you know, by the minute happens in the mornings in the wintertime. And it happens on days when the wind's not blowing, because that's generally when we get enough radiant cooling on the west side of the Cascade Mountains, where the population sits, to have enough people turn their heat on in their homes. And um, I've got poodle visitation here, if you're wondering what I'm doing with my left hand. <laughs> and uh, they, uh, yeah, they, they, the folks turn on their heat and. Uh, generate a lot of electrical demand and at the same time in the pacific northwest because we're you know up pretty far in latitude it's dark in the morning so solar's not generating there's no wind so we're not getting wind generation so the only thing we've got left really at that point that's quote green is our um, hydroelectric dam system and that has a fixed capacity uh, and can't be ramped up very fast either direction because there's all these fish rules and, and other things that go along with running a dam. You just can't suddenly open the floodgates and in, in, in divert all the water into the turbines because um, you'll be taking away in-stream rights and all, all sorts of problems with that. Um, so we end up buying that peak power off off the grid, and generally that peak power is natural gas. What helps us keep our peak down in this state is the number of people that actually heat their homes directly with natural gas out of a pipe buried in the street in front of their house. Because that generation of heat is so much more efficient than burning natural gas at a power plant turning a turbine, you know, making steam, turning a turbine, generating electricity, 
running it through the grid, through transformers, back into your house, and then turning it back into heat. When you burn it in your house, you're about 90% efficient, including all the the, the energy it takes to, to put it into the pipes and pump it to your house. 90%. Heat your house from the electric grid from natural gas generated electricity, you're about 32% efficient. So if you start with 100 BTUs of natural gas, you know, in the, in the natural gas field, pull it out of the ground and, you know, do whatever purifying you have to do, pressurizing, pump it to your house, whatever, you'll get 90 BTUs out of that. If you have electric heat, you'll get 32 BTUs out of that 100 BTUs. Much more efficient. So when we're having to buy power in the wintertime here in the Pacific Northwest, we're actually causing more natural gas to be burned, not less. So as, as the city of Eugene is in negotiations with Northwest Natural, with their, you know, trying to figure out their franchise agreement, which franchise agreements are about the use of public right-of-way, which should be open to any private company willing to pay, you know, for it, but not subject to some kind of additional goals. I don't see the city of Eugene going to Comcast and saying, we want you to, to have your server farms, which are a huge generator of energy needs and thus carbon footprint somehow or another be more efficient or converted to a, a zero emissions source or whatever. Um, they're not doing that with Comcast in their franchise agreement. They seem to think that they can do it with Northwest Natural because they're the evil petroleum industry. And, and it's, you know, some of the what's being suggested by uh, some of the locals where we shouldn't even be building any new natural gas infrastructure in this town is short-sighted and not understanding our peak needs and our demands. And then what happens when we do have that ice storm here, like they had in Albany and further north? You know, I have friends in the Portland area that are darn glad they had a gas fireplace. It was the only source of heat in their entire home for days up in the Portland area, waiting for PG&E to restore power. So um, does natural gas save lives? Yeah, it might, it might just do that, particularly in some of these cold weather events. I mean, it's better than the people that decided to put a generator in their basement. That was a tragic event. So as we think about some of these decisions that are being driven by something other than, you know, allowing people to have choice, something other than, you know, what's most efficient, we really need to think carefully because, you know, People make pretty good choices. They usually make their choices based on economics 
which most of the time economics is driven by efficiency. Why is it cheaper to heat your house and your hot water with natural gas? Because it's more efficient than heating with electricity. So people tend to choose that. And it's a good thing because if we were try if we had to convert every house from a gas to electric right now and try and supply that with our grid in the grid, we would be like Texas with rolling blackouts on winter mornings. We could not supply that peak demand. Even generating it with natural gas. The grid just doesn't have that capacity. It's kind of interesting that Elon Musk came out with a warning this week that he he's fearful that with people converting to electric vehicles that our electric grid won't have the capacity to charge all the electric vehicles. Which, by the way, uh, you know, Robin pointed something out to me that was rather humorous. Um, yeah, Robin, I'll let you 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 describe your your concerns about um, the ability to maybe uh, de-ice some of these uh, um, wind turbines in Texas. <laughs> well, I just think since they're going through uh, their blackouts right now and they rely on solar and wind turbines, which right now are frozen, uh, with no electricity, how are they going to take their electric service vehicles? out to go repair the windmills to get electricity if they don't have electricity to charge the vehicles to drive out to fix the thing to get electricity. Um, that's a good question. <laughs> and, you know, another thing people don't think about, in that sub-zero cold, how well do you think the batteries perform in those electric vehicles? Yeah, the other thing I was thinking of too is picturing this as the guy is trying to get his, do you know, find some way like he's got his little Honda generator trying to charge his car. Um, the the older technician who's driving his old beat up Ford, gasoline powered, is already out there. Yeah, yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Well, it, it, uh, there was a humorous picture that was going around um, social media of some. Uh, electric vehicle being charged by a generator that was being towed behind a diesel pickup truck. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a diesel pickup truck and a diesel generator charging this electric car that had run out of charge on the side of the road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fossil fuels to the rescue. That's right. And what is it, 2035 in Oregon that they mandated 50% of all new cars must be electric. Yep. Yeah. And I, I just makes me shake my head because I don't think, you know, this is where you're getting the government interfering with the free market and a political agenda, which is, I can't, most of this climate stuff is politically driven. It has very little to do with concerns about the world and science. It has more to do with we're going to force you to do what we want you to do. Um, and those decisions just seem to be so short-sighted, you know, as we force ourselves to convert to all these electric cars. No one thinks about the environmental impact of the rare earths that need to be mined for the batteries, the disposal issues for those batteries, of the fire and explosion issues that come with some of those high-tech batteries. 
you know, a lot of first responders in the fire departments are afraid of car wrecks now. Yeah, if you don't know what the quick disconnect is on it or once those batteries. But I do have a question for you. Sure. Okay. Why do people drive motorcycles? Because they're fun. Exactly. <laughs> so when you get into more autonomous vehicles, more electric cars, yeah, it takes the fun out of it. Yeah. Well, yeah, the noise of the motorcycles is one thing I, I think some people get into. I've always had kind of an opinion that the, the louder your motorcycle is or your car, um, it's inversely proportional to something else. Uh, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, but, we have uh, some of the electric vehicles. I, I know that they pass a law. I haven't seen it yet. That if it's under 25 miles an hour, they have to make a noise. Yeah. Because people that are, you know, they can't see or nearsighted. Well, I I traveled to um, Beijing, God, it was 2013, been a while, almost 10 years ago. Um, and maybe it, it might have even been 2011. It's been a while that I traveled to China. Um, and at that point, you know, Beijing was, you know, having its horrible air pollution problems. So they were trying to get a lot of people to convert to electric vehicles. And they had these electric scooters that, oh, my God, as a pedestrian in Beijing, you do not hear those things coming. And they're coming at 40 miles an hour, 40, 45 miles an hour. Um, And they and there's no real traffic lanes in Beijing. (laughs) It's It's the weirdest. People just kind of go whichever direction, and somehow or another it works. I, I didn't see a single wreck the entire time I was in Beijing, but the scooters tend to run right next to the sidewalk and, and up that that in in yeah, along with all the bikes and stuff like that run on that edge of the road. They kind of run in the bike lane, so it's like you're taking your life in your hands when you go to cross the street there. It's <laughs> kind of like a group of people will stand and wait until suddenly traffic decides to stop and let them cross. It's the weirdest, you know, organic thing. But, yeah, uh, I, I agree with you. It's going to be interesting as, as things convert to electricity, although I understand those electric bikes have a, one hell of an acceleration. Oh, yeah. yeah. But yeah. One of the major differences between Beijing and here, uh, yeah. why they wouldn't survive here, Beijing drivers, is because we can't deal with an off-ramp. Yeah. Well, I didn't see anything flow fast enough there to have to deal with merging from an off-ramp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, until we got out in the country, you really didn't move very fast um, on any of their roadways. Mabel, um, we got an exit coming up. Better prepare. Yeah. It was it was an interesting country to tour around, and I saw everything from the big city of Beijing to the very rural parts of the uh, Hunan uh, province um, in southwestern China, and and uh, fascinating trip. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of it's changing and westernizing so fast. I don't know if you'd see the same things I got to see, but it's it was worth worth the trip. Uh, didn't, did a or- lot of- didn't Oregon recently um, allow um, motorized scooters to be on the roads roadway now? I think so. Uh, you know, they're, they're 
keep changing rules and laws so much here in Oregon, it's hard for me to keep up with all that. I, it's enough for me to try and keep up with what impacts how the county runs. Yeah. I, I was just thinking, too, I better, I better be careful how I say this because somebody, especially in Salem, might go, you know, that's a good idea uh, for these electric vehicles. Remember back in the day when you could ride a bike without a helmet and you used to put uh, cards in the spokes to make noise? Yeah. You probably know where I'm going with that. Yeah. You require cards in the spokes of the electric vehicles. Yeah. Yeah, The only thing is, you know, baseball cards have gotten so damn expensive nowadays. Uh, Yeah. Don't put your cell phone in there. Yeah. Yeah. Just go down the road. Meet, meet. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and being a, a, a one of the what, what they call mammals, um, uh, um, although I'm getting past the mammal stage to to I don't know what they call older men in lycra, um, but middle-aged men in lycra, um, where I used to ride on the bike paths around here a lot, trying to warn people as you're coming up behind them. You know, and this is before AirPods, just with just the earbud, you know, earbuds or earphones and stuff like that. And and back in the day when it was, um, you know, your iPod people carried around, not your phone that you were listening to music on. Um, Gosh, you know, did bells on your left, whatever. it, It would still amaze me that people wouldn't quite know you're coming. And they would sort of sense out of their peripheral vision at the last second that you were getting ready to pass them. And then they turn in that direction, which as they walk immediately makes them go that direction too, as you're about to pass them on that side. I don't know how many near misses I've had with pedestrians because they're just so oblivious or so tuned in to whatever they're listening to. And, 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 as you can demonstrate from this show, I do not have a quiet voice when I yell on your left. <laughs> People hear me. I used to be able to make football players on the bench turn around at college football games because they could hear my voice over others calling out their number and their grandma addresses them funny um, <laughs> or various things like that. Uh, you? Yeah, yeah. They used to sit the, the – the marching band behind the opposing team at, at the University of Maryland. Uh, so we spent a lot of the time just trying to harass players. Uh, it was part of our job. Ah, <laughs> oh, the good old days. But being able to be heard over a crowd in a football stadium, I have a voice. And if you can't get somebody's attention on the bike path, you know they're not paying attention. And you could just imagine what it's going to be like with an electric scooter that, you know, I'm going about – 10 or 15 miles an hour, maybe on a bike path, because I slow down because of the idiots on the bike path. Those scooters that can go 40, you sure those folks are going to slow down on the bike path? I don't think so. Yeah. Since since you mentioned that, I have a pet peeve. Sure. I have lots of pet peeves. Sometimes I even feed them. <laughs> this, <laughs> this, unfortunately... Um, happened probably about five years ago in East Springfield. And, I mean, a lot of people can't walk and chew gum at the same time, unfortunately, much less walk and and text at the same time. And then uh, they also, you know, plug in their 
earpods or whatever they're now called. A uh, tragic thing happened in East Springfield. Uh, one of the um, gals just getting out of school over by the Safeway was getting ready to cross the street, and she's texting, has earbuds, and is wearing dark clothes. And next thing you know, a car found her, and unfortunately, her brother witnessed the whole thing. She did not survive. Yeah. So that's um, not to, not to be a downer, but it's like yeah. uh, pay attention. Yeah. Well, uh, you know. I witnessed somebody walk into a sign pole <laughs> while texting. Um, and it was one of those moments where it's just like, yeah, here's your sign. <laughs> we had one of those uh, back in the day. Remember newspapers? Yeah. You know, yeah. those funny things that you... Remember when they didn't print the same thing on the front page of the newspaper in every city in the country and called it a local paper? <laughs> exactly. Um, there was a paper I worked for called the Oregonian I used to live, deliver in this area. And I also used to fill the racks and we were driving this big green van, kind of a truck type of thing, cargo thing. We're at a red light and we get side striped side sides, take three side swiped by a jogger. <laughs> Uh, let me th- let me guess. Had the iPod things in, and was looking down at a phone or something, ran right into the side of the truck, huh? Something like that. It's like, what was that? Oh, hi. <laughs> uh, that would make my morning. Uh, uh, shouldn't laugh at other people's misfortunes. Somebody will accuse me of being unsensitive and they'll edit this into a single piece of uh, and and later on accuse me of racism or something i who knows well the funny thing about that besides besides the incident is that he just kind of bounced off and kept going you know similar to a cat jumping up onto your table and landing in four coffee cups and not mentioning it yeah 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 so you know it's it you know speaking of some of the the weird news coming out and all that um, I got sent an article from my sister-in-law who lives in Delaware and teaches school just across the state line in Maryland. Um, and uh, as a school teacher, got this article. And apparently Oregon is revamping their math curriculum because somehow or another math is racist. Um, and, and it was this serious article about, you know, the white privilege that's involved in math. And I, and I, I scratched my head and scratched my head because when I went to the University of Maryland, as an engineering student, I took a heck of a lot of math from the mathematics department. And you know what? I don't think I had a single white professor in that math department. Yeah. Now somebody can accuse me of being racist because I I made that statement. But at that time, at the university level, that math department, University of Maryland, was dominated by folks that were not of Anglo-Saxon white Protestant origins. You know, I'm probably going to regret even saying this, but... (laughs) 
I thought that number five was rather odd. But um, bum. And yeah. then speaking of math, when I took um, algebra, I think it was ninety-five or something like that. We got into imaginary numbers, uh, which I thought the guy was not being serious. And I asked him, "Can I give you an imaginary answer?" <laughs> I got well, a lot. Of, shut well, up, Ron. root is negative one. He says, sure, and I'll give you an imaginary grade. Ah, uh, yes. Moving uh, right along. Moving uh, right along. But it, uh, just, it's one of those, you know, Oregon always seems to make national news for the weirdest damn reasons. I, you know, anytime one of my friends from back east sends me something where Oregon's made the news, it's always something bizarre. And I, it's just like, can't we just make the news one time for something normal? You know, it's always, you know, you know, mathematics is going to have to be revamped because of white privilege in, in math, you know. And, um, yeah, it was just, okay. Um, I thought math was probably one of the, you know, biased subjects you could possibly do because, you know, what changes you know, integers, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, what changes one plus one equals two? You know, it, it's the same no matter who's doing the equation. Unless it's common core. Yeah, yeah, well, let's not get started there. That's That was a, a mess of how to, yeah. Let's see if we can take an extra five minutes to get the same answer. Exactly. We actually... And this guy probably won't last long. Um, I posted it on the KRBN Facebook page. Senator Dick Anderson of Lincoln City drafted legislation to have Oregon not tax the federal economic impact payments since the federal government is not taxing them. But, of course, Oregon wants to take a little bit off the top, which that $600 you got already, take about, what, 10, 15 percent off the top of that because Oregon wants it. Yeah. Well, you know, that'll probably go just as far as Senator Knope's bill from from uh, the Redmond area there, Ben Redmond area, um, he put a bill in that uh, would actually cancel all the fines that OSHA has placed on businesses about COVID violations. There was no outbreak that came from those violations. Okay, and how would you prove that? Well, I mean, it, you know, they can the contact tracing. They can pretty well tell tell when a business has generated an outbreak. I mean, we had, you know, we've had multiple nursing homes here that had had outbreaks in them. We had a grocery store that had an outbreak that was specifically generated from the employees taking their mask off and sitting around a break table together. Yeah, so you know, you see that sort of. Uh, Ability to say that, yes, that there was, you know, one the employees didn't follow some of the mandates around, you know, how how businesses were supposed to stay open at the time. You know, there's a possibility where if OSHA decide to find, but I doubt OSHA find them because it was a grocery store and they were allowed to stay open. But you get, you know, a a hair salon that opens up, def, you know, defying the 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 governor's restrictions. It's had no cases tied to it at all, but they get, you know tens of thousands of dollars in fines. Uh, we got somebody on the board there you want to check in with? 
Oh, you're checking. Never mind. Um, so while Robin's checking in with his caller, um, I will uh, just say that, you know, there's a lot of good bills that have been floated in the legislature, like um, the bill to not tax your federal stimulus payments and the bill to give some relief. Um, so Robin, is Frank got a question or comment or is he just listening? Frank, Hello, are you there? No, I have a question. I was just wondering what your opinion was of the main Council of Governors. Oh, that is a very interesting topic. Um, so the Lane Council of Governments was formed by an intergovernmental agreement of the local government institutions here. And at the time, it was a very necessary service organization because quite a few, like the city of Coburg um, and Lowell, uh, Westford, Dune City, they just don't have the capacity or even the, the, the number of permits or business level, or whatever, to hire personnel to do some specific things. And so one of the, re- one of the reasons why LCOG was formed was to supply this, you know, business services to governments that were necessary. At, you know, and because they were supplying to multiple small cities and governments, it made, you know, they could do economy of scale. A lot of that business model has changed. You know, it used to be that you had to have a fairly big computer system um, to do some of the mapping work and 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 uh, data work that's necessary now. You know, you think about what you do. Uh, you know, I, I run payroll for my wife's business on a desktop with QuickBooks. You know, and and all of her accounting on one single laptop. You know, so the need for some of those services is gone somewhat by the wayside. So their, their business models changed a lot. And at the same time, they keep letting organizations into LCOG that aren't governmental entities because it's the laying council of governments. Yet we've got school districts, park districts and all, you know, some of them are, you know, are questionable whether they should have been part of LCOG and, um, that board has started to be dominated by non-governmental board members. So that, that you kind of wonder, you know, does LCOG still have a function? Yes, it has some. I believe there's some need for it, but I think there's a need to reform LCOG and, and have it have a little less uh, power and authority and, and bring it back to its original model as a service organization to local governments and maybe revamp the membership and the size of the organization um, because it seems to be feeding on itself in some ways where, where, where it's, it's there to ex- it exists for the benefit of LCOG, not so much for the benefit of its members. So is that... It, yeah, my understanding is that you can find it in just about every county in the United States, actually. But they do exert a lot of power over about what happens in our community because they are making decisions and uh, meeting with uh, state representatives and then getting things passed through that maybe the uh, county itself, uh, like yourself, uh, don't really want. Yeah, and that's, you know, 
one of the things about governance structure in those those councils of governments. That's where I disagree with the idea of bringing in some of the entities they brought in that really aren't government. Um, you don't elect a school board member to make policy about government, you know, and 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 that sort of. But you do elect a county commissioner or a city council or, or a mayor to do that. And if they're on the board and the voting members of that board making decisions about that, but it, you know, focusing on being a service industry, not a policy body. And unfortunately, LCOG is swayed into policy a couple of times. Probably, you know, one of the most glaring examples of that was when they were trying to um, take an ICLE, um Agenda 21 thing and, uh, you know, do some the lane livability consortium here, which was basically an effort to um, take a UN um, sustainable living sort of model and apply it to the local county. And it was really, really being pushed by LCOG because they want they they wanted the grant. They applied for the grant money and wanted to run the grant, you know, run the process and all that stuff. So you see sometimes where the agency, in an effort to keep itself going, will actually reach out and try and get sources of funding that aren't coming from their dues, um, you know, or or contracts directly with its members. You know, that's that's where I, you know, yeah, there I'm, needs to my be. My understanding is that in places like San Ana, California. It's really run by people who believe in the Agenda 2130 concept, and they're trying to get the state to do all of those things which California is willing to do. But I was just wondering how much influence they had at this time in our county. This is explained, and I do appreciate it. Yeah, I think they've got a little bit more than they need. Um, they're not as bad as some of the California um, councils of governments. Um, and I think um, there's enough pushback from some of the members, uh, uh, cities um, that are a little bit more conservative and um, that, that, that keeps them a little bit on the straight and narrow. Springfield, you know, and Venita and Junction City aren't going to keep participating in LCOG if they keep running off the rails to, towards the Agenda 21 progressive side of things. So to keep their membership together, they have to kind of be a little bit more discerning and not, not quite so obvious. So my understanding of the Elcox, uh, the movement throughout the United States was primarily to push the 2130 agenda kind of secretly using Elcog, not Elcog, but main council of governments to do that. And it seems like it's been effective because this, town of Eugene is really moving in that direction, I think. I think some of the, you know, the councils of governments have been around longer than um, Agenda 21. Um, you know, cause, I mean, Agenda 21 was signed by um, President Bush in 92, I think. Yep. I think. I'd have to go back and double check. Uh, but it, it's and it, and I think Elcog's been around much longer than that. Um, so I don't think they were necessarily set up with that purpose. I do believe um, 
like a lot of the staff buried in planning departments around the country, they're coming out of colleges that are teaching sustainable development under, you know, Agenda 21 models. So their staffers that they're hiring out of the colleges already believe that that's the way to go. So their their staff pushes that direction naturally, and and, and that's that's an issue in itself, um, and and uh, something that you know you see the you know the colleges teach that that model that you know everything has to be followed you know, what Agenda 21 says their version of sustainable development is. And uh, that's what those planning staffers that are in those cogs will push. I want to thank you for answering my question, and I appreciate it very much. And this is the first time I've listened in, and I really appreciated it. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for calling, Frank, and I appreciate, appreciate the call. So see, Frank just demonstrated perfectly why I like this as run this as a call-in show. He took the conversation where he wanted to go. We weren't talking about LCOG at the time he called, and we hadn't even talked about it in the program, although I've talked about it a couple of times prior to this. He took the program straight where he wanted to go. So that's all it takes is that phone call um, from you, a listener. Want to jump in, Robin? No, I, you know, Frank. Appreciate you you calling. Hope that you give us a like on Facebook and continue to tune in and call. And uh, and well, we greatly appreciate the you know checking in with us. Yep. Just like you know, last week we got to talk about negative tides in in Florence because we had a caller call in. We also got to talk about nanoparticles and virus. And viruses and and uh, and, and uh, all sorts of con- interesting conspiracy theories too. <laughs> exactly, and just uh, just so people know that you know we post topics, but like Jay said, we're not we're not married to those topics. They're just suggestions, and you know if you do have something you want to talk about, call us. Yeah. Even yeah. If- I, you know, sometimes I'll try and get the certain things I want to cover, particularly if it's something that's time sensitive that I want people to understand that either the board of commissioners is getting ready to do or the state legislature. But generally, we post topics. And the last part of my my lead in when I pro- promo the show on Facebook is got something else on your mind. Give us a call. <laughs> we'll talk about what you want to talk about here on the Bose Nose Show. Well, I want to thank Frank for calling. I want to thank everyone else for listening this week. We'll be back here live, coming to you from beautiful downtown Elmira next Wednesday, 4 p.m. Pacific. Have a great week. Bye.